Bring it in. Another episode. Locked and loaded basketball filled edition of the read option. Lots to talk about today. Uh, but before we get into that, just want to shout out again anyone who has listened to the pod, subscribed, liked it, shared it, done anything. Uh, again, it really does mean a whole lot to me and uh, Vito and Scotty and, and kind of everyone who's been helping out here on this podcast. So just want to say thank you again. You can follow us on uh, Twitter and on instagram at read option pod starting to get that going as well as an instagram page have not quite gotten that going here but we got the blog coming out and some interviews on the way hopefully starting next week but for today we're going to open with a guy by the name of jalen johnson now jalen johnson is a forward who plays for duke he made some news this week he opted out of the rest of the college basketball season Now, Jalen Johnson is a top NBA draft prospect, projected to be more than likely a top 10 pick, and has struggled with a lot of things this year. You know, first and foremost, he's been injured for the majority of the season. He's only played 13 games this year, and he's been doing the best that he can in this abnormal college basketball, college sports mixed with COVID-19 pandemic world that we live in, where these amateur athletes are going out and risking their health long-term and short-term to, to play. And look, they all signed up for it. They're 18 years old and, you know, we get it. But it's important to note that Jalen Johnson has gotten a lot of shit this week. I mean, people have been just absolutely ripping this kid. And from everything I've seen, he had a pretty legitimate reason to decide not to play this year. It's become normal in our sports society that, when kids opt out and decide to go on to professional sports, we label them as selfish or quitters. You know, we bring up these pretty terrible things to say about 18, 19 year old kids that we probably wouldn't say under any other circumstance. But because we live in a society that is so sports obsessed, these kids get ripped. You know, it's the same thing as when an 18 year old kid decides, you know, was verbally committed to one part, one school decides he actually wants to sign somewhere else. And there are these losers online, just absolutely ripping them, you know, like don't, you never want to be that guy right off the bat. You, you never want to be that guy, but it's important to know that this isn't new to college sports, right? Like Christian McCaffrey, Leonard Fournette, they started this trend of opting out of meaningless bowl games back in 2016. The NCAA has some fault in that, by the way, as to why those bowl games have become meaningless. But this is nothing more than a football player at the end of the season deciding, you know what, I want to save my health and get ready for the NFL. But because this is the first example, really, that we've seen outside of James Wiseman last year, but that had some more legal and and NCAA, you know, uh, discrepancies to it that made it a little bit different. This one is really based off of purely injury. Jalen Johnson was a big man. He played a lot of small ball five for Duke this year, which isn't really his natural position. Again, he only played 13 games and there shouldn't be any issue as to whether or not this kid should feel like he can go get healthy and move on to prepare for his NBA career. The precedent has been set right in football. And now we've seen it in basketball. 
And ultimately, these guys have worked their entire lives to get to where they want to go. They're not there yet. They're working to get to where they want to go. And let me put it to you this way. Right? If you're an average college student and someone in your profession that you're trying to get to, a dream job, reaches out to you and says, hey, I want you to come work for me right now. You don't have to finish your degree. I want you to come work for me right now. I'll pay you a couple million dollars and you can come work for me in my in, in this field, right? Out in Silicon Valley or, or whatever example you want to use. I don't think anyone would criticize the kid for deciding that he wants to go do his dream job, right? I, I would sure hope that no one in my life would do that for me. You know, yeah, maybe it's not the smartest idea to know to not go out and get your your degree, not finish out getting your degree. But at the same time, you wouldn't call me selfish, right? You wouldn't say that I'm quitting on anybody. You wouldn't say like, oh man, he's quitting on his professors and his classmates who have all, they've all been in this together. He did group projects with these kids and now he's just, he's just hanging them out to dry, right? Like no one would say that. But the argument that people would tell you in that situation is that you are making a risk. You know, what would happen if that startup or job or, you know, whatever it is, doesn't end up working out and you're left without a degree? Well, that would be ultimately the gamble that you're making. And the only person who that would impact would be me. You know, I've used this example a hundred times in the name, image, and likeness conversation. If there's a violinist at your school who starts a YouTube channel or something while they're there, and they get very famous for it, and they can go off and make a career out of it, right? They can not only get paid while they're still going to school, but if they wanted to go and leave and join an orchestra or join a band and go pursue their dream just and, and they didn't get their degree to finish it off, like we wouldn't care. But with sports, we do. And yeah, you might be risking something if you didn't stay for your degree. But in Jalen Johnson's case, the gamble is that he only played 13 games this year, right? The gamble is, is he hurting his reputation by doing this? And, and the answer should be no. The answer should be no. Who cares? He's, he's doing what he thinks is in the best interest of his career in the long term, which is getting healthy now. Because this is the thing. He came back and played throughout this year on a not fully uh, healed foot. He was risking hurting it further as we're getting to the point where we're about six months away, I mean, a little longer than that, seven months away from the NBA draft. But it's important to remember why he went to Duke in the first place. He went to Duke to get the chance to play at a sold out Cameron indoor in front of all of these fans and to live on campus and be the big man on campus no one's getting that this year like no one's getting that football basketball we don't have that kind of an environment in the COVID-19 world it's him alone in a dorm the amount of emotional and physical effects that this has had on these young student athletes is it just can't be understated and so he sacrificed all this he played through injury he gave everything he could. And on top of it, Duke is terrible. They're not making a tournament. He's not getting a chance to go win a national championship with Coach K. And by all reports, this was a mutually discussed situation. This wasn't just Jalen Johnson deciding out of the blue one day, you know what? I actually, I don't 
want to play for Duke anymore. And I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm not going to talk to anybody about it. I'm just going to bounce. No, that's not what this is. He talked to Coach K. He talked to the people at Duke. He wants to rehab his foot, get ready for the NBA combine, work out with people, you know, sign an agent, get the ball rolling on this stuff, and go be an NBA player because that's what he should be doing anyway. We talked about this last week on the pod, right? The fact that these kids have to go to a college for a year, a sham year anyway, when they could just be training and getting ready to go live out their dreams, it's it's a farce. It's ridiculous. And ultimately, all of the the bullshit surrounding this whole thing just comes down to the way we view sports and college sports in particular, right? The college sports purists, they get, they get offended when college athletes want to do right by themselves because God forbid the guys who don't get paid anything want to look out for their long-term financial future and not just what Jim Bob is sitting now watching Alabama football. And you know, like we need to have an open mind about this. We have to recognize that these kids are sacrificing a lot just to go to college when they shouldn't even have to, to begin with. That's why the NBA has the G league pathway. It's why in a couple of years, they're going to get rid of the one and done rule. And it might be, you can either go straight to the pathway from high school or spend two years in college. And then you can go out, might be something like that, which would help college basketball in the long run. But for right now, the system we have in place does a disservice to the kids themselves. And we also end up putting all of the pressure on this because we expect all this much from college athletes. And, and, and it's just, it's gotten out of hand. And at the end of the day here, you know what's worse than Jalen Johnson protecting his future? Being that guy on Twitter, calling an 18-year-old kid a quitter or a loser or selfish. You don't want to be that guy. So don't be that guy. Now it's time to talk a little bit of NBA basketball. Uh, The NBA All-Star voting had to be submitted for writers and those with the votes on Tuesday. So I'm recording this on Wednesday, yesterday, probably two days ago from the time that you are listening. And this year is a very interesting case. Now I went through and I filled out my own all-star teams from the East and the West, at least the representatives, right? Cause we know that they do the draft. Now the two captains end up doing a draft between them, which has been uh, an absolute pleasure to watch over the last couple of years. So before I get into who I picked, why I picked them, kind of going along in some of the interesting battles and and debates that I had in my own head, it's important to think of philosophically, like, how are you voting, right? And it's the all-star game, right? Like, I'm not trying to turn it into some big, massive thing, but it's fun. And, and believe it or not, it actually means a lot to a lot of players at the end of the, at the end of their careers, those who come up short, who are like some of the best players to never make an all-star team, that those are things that really bug them, you know? Like, I look at a guy like Manu Ginobili. I think Manu ended up making two all-star games by the time all was said and done. If Manu, because he was a sixth man for the majority of his of his prime, honestly, had never gotten into an all-star game, that would be a, like a, a low-key travesty. Like, we wouldn't think about him the same way. But the fact that he did get included in two all-star games is important. It, it helps write out what his legacy was, which was a phenomenal player, not just a role player on a bunch of championship teams. He was one of the core pieces of the Spurs for the better part of 20 years. So philosophically, what I value and what I think 
other MBA writers and, and whatnot value are a few things, right? Number one, I look at your stats, right? And that seems kind of obvious, but I'm not just looking at points, rebounds, assists, all that stuff. You got to look at the advanced numbers, right? And to me, the most important thing is efficiency because there are people who are, could very well end up making the all-star team this year who probably don't deserve it when it comes to their overall efficiency. Here's a great example for you. Zach Levine. Zach Levine is in the top 10 easily in scoring in the NBA right now. He is 25th in player efficiency rating. He's averaging 28 points a game, balling out, but he's not very efficient. He's also putting up a ton of shots, right? So when you think about statistics, you don't just want to think about raw numbers because a lot of people can put up raw numbers, but it's the effect that it has on winning. And that's the second one, right? Are you on a winning team? Are you contributing to the fact that your team's winning? Are you on a terrible team, but you are just so good that you lift, you know, rising tide lifts all boats, right? You know, who is that in basketball form? Those guys, they deserve at least, if, if not starters, they at least deserve, you know, reserve, reserve spots. You know, right off the bat, you think of Bradley Beal and Steph Curry, two guys who are number one and number two in scoring in the NBA this season. You know, both of those teams, Washington and Golden State, without Beal and Curry or Curry, are bottom three teams. I mean, the Wizards already are. <laughs> Uh, but like, look at Golden State, you know, Golden State right now is an eighth in the Western Conference. They are, as of right now, going to be a play in tournament team. And it's important to reward guys who maybe at the end of the year, when you're talking about all NBA ballots, right, and first, second team, third team, all NBA, you may not, you know, want to put guys on really, really bad teams, even though they might have incredible years. All NBA might mean more to you as far as guys on winning teams. And for me, the all-star game is an opportunity to reward guys who are on bad teams for having incredible years. The last two kind of things that I look at when I'm putting this together is the player deserving, right? Uh, is the player, has he been half-assing it, right? Has he, I don't know, ate and drank and partied his way out of a city to go to a different team? I don't know. Uh, or maybe he just decided to leave his team for a month and not tell anybody about it. I don't know. But <laughs> all those things kind of get tied into this, right? And the last metric I would have, and this is not really a metric as much as just what I like to see in the All-Star game, is entertainment value, right? Um, guys like Zion, who maybe statistically there's a case that you could leave them off the All-Star team. But I think we all want to see Zion in the game ripping down dunks, right? That's it's kind of an important – it's kind of what makes the All-Star game fun. And last year with the Elam ending, they, they made it – you know, they made the ending of it significant. They made it special. And there was also money on the line for charities, for children's charities, which I also thought was kind of fucked up because, like, one child's charity got way more than the other child's charity. But at least everyone got some sort of donation. Um, either way – the NBA has done a really good job of increasing the entertainment value of the all-star game. And so much of that will come down to the individual players that you have actually playing in the game. So with that being said, I'm going to go through the starters in the East and the West. 
uh, and then we'll I'll work down some of the decisions that are tough. And and for the record, this is the first time I've ever filled out an All Star Game kind of makeshift ballot. And I did the same thing for the All NBA team or All NBA teams that we'll do later on in the pod. It's hard. <laughs> like I have a whole new respect for NBA writers and whatnot. I've listened to podcasts where they're like, oh man, I really had a tough time. You know, Zach Lowe's famous for being like, I lost sleep over this. And I sat for probably two hours today, stressed out of my mind, figuring out who I was going to be putting into these slots each. So we'll start off with the East. And the first player I have in at the two guard spots, I have Bradley Beal and Jalen Brown as the starters. Now for Bradley Beal, the case It's not simple, right? Because there is a case to be made that Washington is objectively a terrible team. And yeah, he's putting up 33 points a game, but the team's not winning. So what does it really matter if he's putting up all those points? Well, to me, like Bradley Beal is kind of stuck. You know, he signed an extension. He'll probably be the next superstar to move. But 33 points a game is ridiculous. He's three points more a game than Steph. And Steph's having and is having better numbers now than he did in his 2015-2016 MVP season. So Bradley Beal absolutely deserves credit and deserves to be an all-star starter, even though I understand the argument from the other side that maybe he shouldn't be. Now, Jalen Brown is a little tougher, right? Like this is where I, I struggled a little bit because it was going to be either Jalen Brown or James Harden and Kyrie Irving. Now, I have issues with the way James Harden and Kyrie Irving have acted this year. And James Harden, I did the whole breakdown last week. I'm not going to get into it again. The Kyrie thing, I get that he was going through a lot of stuff, and he hasn't been open about it. He hasn't talked about it. But that's also kind of part of the problem, which is that he just stopped showing up. Didn't tell his employers, didn't tell his teammates, didn't tell anybody. He just stopped showing up, just gone, out of thin air. And he was gone for a significant amount of time. And while he has been incredible while he's been on the court this year, like legitimately Kyrie is having probably his best statistical season, at least was before the Harden trade. Now the ball's kind of getting traded out. I mean, some of the things Kyrie does, man, he he is the best finisher at the rim that I've ever seen. He puts up shots that you think there's just no way this ball's going in. And his ability to use the glass, create contact, and still finish – his step back game, he always knows exactly where he wants to go and exactly how he needs to finish in each one of those places, his mid-range game, and he shoots the ball lights out from three. But that's when I refer back to the deserving element of my, you know, my all-star philosophy, which is I don't think Kyrie Irving deserves to be an all-star game starter. He's been incredible, but you can't do what he did and then be rewarded simultaneously with being an all-star starter. But the reason I put in Jalen Brown, because I don't mean to take anything away from him on this, you know, it's not like, Oh, well, I don't want to put Harden and I Kurt Kyrie. So who do I put in? Jalen Brown has had a career year. It's averaging 26 points, five rebounds, three assists. He's been very efficient throughout the whole season. He plays uh, he's probably one of the best just straight up, wing defenders we have in the NBA right now. And I think part of it with Jalen too is just an effort thing. You know, there's a lot of guys who have all the physical attributes, cough, cough, Zach Levine, cough, cough, that just never quite put in the effort. You know, I mean, Jalen Brown's top 10 in points a game. He's shooting 41% from three. 
on 55% shooting, almost 56% shooting. He gets to the line, not as much as you'd like, right? Because he's not necessarily a dribble guy, but he's doing a nice job of helping kind of distribute the basketball, plays his part, but he has really kind of taken over. Like, I don't, if you asked me this last year, who would you rather have, him or Jason Tatum? I think it would have been a no doubt I would rather have Jason Tatum. And I still think I would lean Jason Tatum. But Jalen Brown has made it at least a conversation this year, which, to be honest, I never really thought that I would. I think he's universally liked in the NBA. You know, I think he's a guy that literally every team in the league would love to have Jalen Brown on their team. And he deserves the opportunity to start. You know, I think he has earned that. And the Celtics have had objectively a a pretty down year thinking about where they were coming into the season. But at the same time, the only reason that they're currently fifth in the NBA right now or in the Eastern Conference right now is in large part because of Jalen Brown. Uh, At the forwards in the East, I have Kevin Durant and Giannis. Feels like that's pretty self-explanatory. You know, KD's 29-7-5. There was so much doubt as to whether or not KD was going to be KD when he came back, right? And he tore his Achilles in that NBA Finals, which was, God, summer of 2019. So we're coming up on just about two years, a year and eight months removed from that Achilles injury. And then you have the pushback season, obviously 2020. He missed all of 2020, and we knew that. But then because of the pandemic, and the canceling of the NBA season and then pushing it back into the bubble and then pushing back the start of the league season until that December range. That's kind of the best thing that could have happened for Kevin Durant. Normally, if you rupture your Achilles, you know, it's going to give you, it's going to be at least a year and even still never really sure if you're going to be back to full strength. Not to mention the guy is seven feet tall and, doesn't have an ounce of fat on him. I mean, he is so skinny and tall. I was really worried about whether or not we would ever see the Kevin Durant that we saw in Golden State in OKC again. And what we have seen is that when he plays, he is as good as he was for either one of those teams. And that's a scary thing for guys playing in the East. Giannis, again, pretty self-explanatory. 28-11-6 as far as his raw numbers go. Uh, His efficiency, he's one of the most, uh, he's third in PER behind Jokic and Embiid, shooting 56% from the floor. And look, I think there's a little bit of Giannis fatigue. You know, he is a monster. He's the back-to-back MVP two years in a row, and it's kind of hard to argue either one of them. I know a lot of people said LeBron should have gotten it last year, but Giannis has just just been so good center Embiid. I mean, he, he's arguably the MVP of the league up until this point. I don't know what else you can say. I mean, he affects the, the floor on both ends. He's second in PER. Sec, uh, he's top 10 in win shares. Um, he's, he's just been an absolute monster. And I don't think there has to be much more said about that. In the West, my guards are Steph Curry, who is having an absolute renaissance of the season. He's got 36 and five. I don't think Steph's ever averaged five rebounds in a game. Um, he he plays great defensively. His splits are nuts. He's shooting. Oh, he just dipped under fifty percent, but he's at forty nine point nine percent 
from the field on 43% shooting from behind the arc and 93% from the foul line. Uh, Again, just stupid, stupid video game numbers. And I've said this before, but just how awesome it is to have Steph Curry back. You know, I, I feel like we all have missed Steph. And the thing I love about Steph is that he's doing all of this and he's still maintaining his efficiency. He's still eighth in the league in PER. You know, he's fourth in win shares right now behind uh, Jokic, Giannis, and LeBron. So Steph, Locke to be one of the starters of the All-Star game. This second one, though, is really tough because it comes down to two guys, right? Either Luka Doncic or Damian Lillard. They are both exceptional talents, both of which are having amazing years. So I go back to my, you know, my rules, my philosophy here, which one of which is the effect or impact on winning. One of these guys plays for a team that is currently fourth in the Western Conference. The other plays for a team that's currently 10th in the Western Conference. I'm taking Damian Lillard because the fact that the Portland Trailblazers are 17 and 10 in fourth place, only three games back of the Clippers and only four games back of the Lakers without C.J. McCollum, without Zach Collins, without Nurkic, it's legitimately like it's incredible. He's playing with, you know, not, not schlups, you know, he's got talented guys around him, but he's missing his three best teammates, arguably. I mean, maybe Robert Covington is on that same level as Nurkic and Zach Collins, but he doesn't have big men and he hits game winning shot after game winning shot clutch time. I mean, Dame, Dame's been, you know, just playing out of his mind this entire season. And as much as I love, love, love Luka Doncic and believe that he is the future of the NBA, this year, his usage rate is like off the chart. He's leading the league in usage rate by a good chunk. I have it here. Sorry, he's second by 0.4 to Bradley Beal. But they're both at 36% usage rate, and then it drops down another 3 4%. His usage rate is 5% more than Dame's. And Damian's doing it far more efficiently. Luke is leading the league in turnovers. And to be fair, he's doing it because he has to, because his teammates are terrible in comparison to... I wouldn't even say that, but he's just in a tougher situation where he has to be a higher, he has to account for a higher percentage of the overall offense. And though his raw numbers are a little bit better than Dame's, I think the efficiency for me is what kind of puts it over the top. And again, the more important side, the impact it has on winning. So Steph and Dame are my guards, LeBron and Kawhi. I have as my forwards, LeBron is, you know, top three MVP candidate this year. He's averaging 26, eight and eight while doing everything efficiently, playing great defense. Kawhi, you know, again, an awesome year from him. The reason I have him as a starter over anyone else there at the forward position is because there just aren't a lot of great forwards in the West. You know, you could put Paul George in there over him, but I think Kawhi's having the better year of the two. The only other one would be Zion, and Zion's just not putting up. Kawhi's at the top of the league in scoring. He's... I feel like he's become much better at just distributing the ball, running the offense. Uh, And that Clippers team, you know, they're just, 
they're just winning games. You know, they're not blown. You know, when they win games, they blow people out. In fact, they have the least amount of crunch time minutes of any team in the NBA. So when they lose games, they lose games pretty bad. When they win games, they win games pretty big. So we'll see how that ultimately affects them down the line. Again, it's still, we're still just a third of the way into the season, a little less than 40%, you know, so we can't write too much off as to, as though nothing will change, or this is exactly how it's going to look. There's a lot of basketball left to be played, but until this point in time, when the votes have to be in Kawhi Leonard should be a starter in the all-star game. And then the last guy in the starters, the center for the West Jokic, the Joker, who is just having an, absolutely absurd season statistically the only knock on denver right now is that they're in seventh place in the western conference now a lot of that has to do with certain schedules right and they've had to play the lakers twice already they stole one away from them they played the clippers a few times they've had a tough schedule to get going here but also the disappearance of jamal murray you know jamal murray had just an absolutely insane bubble Remember he and Donovan Mitchell going back and forth and back and forth, the three, one comeback. Like it was one of the best playoff series I've ever seen. And it was in the second round. It it was nuts. And so I think the expectation for Jamal Murray this year was that he could take a step up. He could average 25 to 27 a night and take some of the scoring burden off of Jokic. But what we've seen is that Jokic has taken yet another step, right? He is number one in arguably three of the most important stats to have in basketball, efficiency-wise. Number one in PER, number one in win shares, and number one in VORP. Now, not only is he number one in in win shares, he has like 6.1 wins that are attributed just to Jokic alone. So what Jokic is doing this year, the impact, and you can even say, yeah, they're not winning a ton of games, but they're only winning the games that they're winning because of Jokic. He's also way better on the defensive end than I than I realized. And again, defense is tough because you can't look at just metrics from that. And I haven't watched enough of the Nuggets specifically to tell you, oh yeah, Jokic is a great defender. The numbers would tell you that he is better than you would think. I still think given his athletic range, he leaves some to be desired. You know, a little something to be desired there when you talk about the defensive end of the floor. But offensively, what he does at his size and his position, I mean, I watch him bring the ball up like a point guard, and it feels like, yeah, okay. like that's what, Yeah, do it. Like, you should be doing that. You should have the ball in your hands every single time you're on the court. That is just how good he is. He has some of the best vision of any player I've ever seen, not just a big man. He is truly, truly impressive. So to recap, East-West starters, I have Bradley Beal, Jalen Brown, Kevin Durant, Giannis, and Embiid in the East. In the West, I have Steph, Dame, LeBron, Kawhi, and Jokic. Now, for the reserves, uh, I alluded to it a little bit earlier. I'm starting off the reserves with James Harden and Kyrie Irving because statistically, they do both deserve to be on the All-Star team. I mean, James Harden is, is averaging... His points have dropped significantly, but he's leading the league in assists. He's done a really good job of, of kind of just accepting his new role, right? And Kyrie Irving just last week said, you know, I'm handing over the reins of point guard to James Harden, which actually makes sense because this is something Kyrie's done in the past. Kyrie deferred to LeBron 
when they were playing in Cleveland and, and Kyrie was just the two guard. And then when he had the opportunity to run the ball, you know, run point and, and have the ball in his hands, he made the most of it. But of those guys, I think Kyrie's the one who can be the best just spot up shooter when they need it to be. I mean, Kevin Durant obviously is, is probably the answer there, but Kyrie is just as good at it. And Kyrie's going to get his, you know, his ability to move off the back screens. I mean, the guy played with LeBron, you can't play with LeBron on the court at the same time without understanding how to fit in on a basketball team, a championship team with LeBron. But I think when you just look at the season, you know, he missed a good chunk of games. And so statistically and the amount of games played and everything else, I think it's fair to make him a reserve because he deserves it. He deserves to be in this game. He deserves to be in the all-star team. Um, and you can say, say a lot of the same things about James Harden because obviously what James Harden did to get out of Houston was pretty shitty. And I think anyone with a brain who watched that all unfold can say, yeah, you know what? Maybe he didn't do it the best way possible. Maybe there was a, a maybe even just a slightly better way that he could have done that. After Kyrie and James Harden is when things get really tough. Now, the East as a whole was brutal, absolutely brutal. And there are going to be players who are absolutely deserving to be on this roster, on this game, you know, on this all-star team who just, they're, they're not going to make it. So first up, I have Ben Simmons. And a lot of people would push back on me for that. And I would tell them to go fuck themselves <laughs> because Ben Simmons, A, he, I think he cemented it the other night, dropping 42 against Utah without Embiid. And yeah, the Sixers ended up losing the game. You know, I wouldn't say right now he's the most important piece of them winning, but he is probably the most important piece for them winning a championship, right? Aside from Embiid. Embiid is, is the core of that piece, but without Simmons and what he does on the defensive end, I mean, he, he has proven now that he can guard anyone from Giannis to Dame Lillard and win the majority of those matchups. What he did against Dame Lillard, who, again, we talked about this a little earlier, how ridiculous Dame Lillard has been from the start of the season. And what Ben Simmons was able to do to slow him down, because you're never going to stop these guys, but you can slow them down, is, is it's insane. They did the same thing to Devin Booker over the weekend, and yet there was one highlight of Devin Booker hitting a step back after crossing up Ben Simmons, and everyone goes, oh, defensive player of the year, huh? Oh yeah, Ben Simmons is a good defender. And it's like, dude, did you, you watched one highlight on Ball is Life and you think that you now understand basketball? Like I follow basketball like crazy and I still don't even understand all of basketball, not even close. But again, I defer to the people who do know, who know it at an elite level. I ask questions to people who understand the game better than I do to learn. And what every single one of them will tell you is that having a defender at the level of Ben Simmons, who can not only stop LeBron, which they beat the Lakers on that ESPN game a few weeks ago, but then can also cover Dame Lillard and Giannis. Those guys don't exist. Like Giannis couldn't cover Dame. He wouldn't be able to. Dame would be able to get by him. Now, maybe he'd worry about getting blocked and whatnot, but like there again, Simmons is about to enter an echelon of player of defensive player that only a handful of guys have gotten to because of his intangibles. You can't teach 6'10", and you can't teach his speed and his athleticism. But he has shown how important he is. On top of it, the guy almost averages a triple-double at night. He's averaging, uh, I think, 16, 8, and 8. All right? So, again, on face value, bulk stats, you know, you can say what you will – they're not insane. He's not scoring and lighting it up all the time, every second of every game. Ben Simmons, 
deserves to be on this all-star team. And on top of it, the Sixers are the number one team in the Eastern Conference. And I'm not a, a, a fan of always putting, you know, two players from whoever the number one team in, the, in, in that conference is in the game. And there's a perfectly valid argument that he should be left off. But at this point, I really feel that Ben Simmons is deserving of that spot. And at least one of these spots at, at the guard. After that is when things get even more tough. Because I, I felt pretty confident about Ben Simmons being on this team. So right now I have three guys for two spots. Which is DeMontis Sabonis, Julius Randle from the Knicks, and Jason Tatum. Now, again, I think Jason Tatum is the player who should be the best out of those three guys. But right now, we're not seeing that from Tatum. He's having a bit of a down year. He has not been particularly efficient shooting the basketball. He's putting up decent numbers. He's still at about 25 points per game. But that's not contributing to winning. And there's a lot of problems going on in Boston. That being said, they are still the four seed in the East, but the Eastern Conference is brutal. You know, Indiana is... 14 and 14 at that five seed. And from then down, it's all losing records. <laughs> so the top four teams have a winning record. And even still the Celtics are 15 and 14. So they're, they're a half game above 500. And yet everyone below them is either at 500 or below 500, including three teams that would be making the playoffs today. If the season ended that have a losing record. So the East is, East is pretty weak despite having a lot of talent, which is kind of tough to figure out, right? Like if the East has more talent and it's harder to pick the East all-stars, why is the East so bad? I don't have an answer for you. It's just an interesting thought. But between Sabonis, who is dragging this, you know, and Malcolm Brogdon's having a good year too, but when they traded Oladipo, they bring in Karis LeVert and then Karis LeVert has the kidney scary kidney issue and they they just haven't been the same since and i think sabonis has just kind of had to put the team on his back you know and just carry them as far as he possibly can uh, julius randall's having a breakout year for the knicks i don't even say breakout year because we've seen him be really good before but think about this i mean he's kind of the driving force and a lot of this goes back to tom thibodeau and the job that he's done with the knicks but a lot of this whole, you know, emergence of the Knicks right now, the Knicks are in the postseason. Again, if the season were to end today, or at least they'd be in one of the playoff game or playing games, a, a huge chunk of that is because of Julius Randle. I mean, he dropped 40 points the other night. He was the first 40 point score in a game for the Knicks since Trey Burke in 2018. So it's been a minute since the Knicks had someone hit 40 points. And Julius Randle, I think, what he's been doing on both ends of the court. I think he's a sneaky defensive player of the year candidate. He plays incredibly hard. He is kind of a perfect Tibbs guy, you know, and they just got Derrick Rose back. So we'll see how that continues to develop. I don't think they're going to, you know, no one's afraid of the Knicks. I don't think they're going to upset anybody or scare anybody in the Eastern conference, but Julius Randall is, is deserving to me. Unfortunately though, he's going up against Jason Tatum. And I think right now I'm pretty sold on Sabonis being in the all-star game. So it comes down to, again, the rules. Efficiency, impact on winning, deservingness, entertainment value. I think Jason Tatum's probably more entertaining. 
It's not quite as efficient, but frankly, neither one of them are. I got to go with Jason Tatum. And I don't feel good about it. I wish I could find a way to get Julius Randle into this game, but unfortunately, I don't see a way that that's going to happen. The last two spots I have here go to Chris Middleton, who second best player on the second best team in the Eastern Conference. He's averaging over 20, five and five. He has become the guy that the Bucs are giving the ball at the end of games. And now Drew Holiday will have something to say about that when he gets back in, but they've found ways, but you know what, Giannis, you just, you can't have the ball at the end of games, man. And the last player I have in the Eastern Conference is a bit of a wild card. And I've seen some people from ESPN agree with me here, so I didn't feel totally stupid thinking this. But I have Fred Van Vliet, uh, point guard from Toronto. Kyle Lowry's obviously past his prime, well past his prime at this point. And this is a guy who was, I mean, it's a phenomenal story, which would increase the entertainment value. So that's definitely part of it. But if you look at the other people he would be comparing with there in the Eastern Conference, it's Zach Levine, who statistically, I get, is is having a much better year than uh, Fred Van Vliet. But some of the advanced metrics on just direct impact on winning games have Fred Van Vliet as one of the top 10 players in the league. Nothing against Zach Levine. I just I think Fred Van Vliet is an absolute complete player. That's the Eastern Conference. So recap, Bradley Beal, Jalen Brown, KD, Giannis, and Bede. Reserves, I have Harden, Kyrie, Ben Simmons, Sabonis, Tatum, Chris Milton, and Fred Van Vliet. The Western Conference reserves, I have number one, you have to pick him, Luca. Luca's just been off the charts. 29, 8, and 9. God, that's stupid. Uh, they just, uh, you know, again, they just haven't been winning enough games for me to put him in that starting spot. Uh, Paul George, shortly after that, again, kind of a no brainer. He and Kawhi, uh, you know, he's just a little bit behind Kawhi in some of the numbers. And, but that being said, I mean, he's shooting 50, 40, 90. I think he's at 47% from three. He's at like 54 from the floor. 47 from three and he's shooting over 90% from the free throw line. So he's having an exceptionally efficient year. Uh, the next few, I would say the other no brainer I have on my list is Rudy Gobert. Cause the jazz are the best team in basketball and it's not particularly close right now, but the weird thing is they don't have a single, uh, they don't have a singular player that kind of stands out and you can't put in Gobert, Donovan Mitchell and Mike Connolly. I think you can get away with putting two of them in, but the one that you absolutely have to put in is Rudy Gobert because so much of what they're able to do is predicated on what Rudy Gobert is providing them from a defensive standpoint at center, uh, but even on offense because he's so big and so long and he's so efficient. I mean, right now, Gobert is shooting 63% from the field. And he, look, he's only averaging like 14 points a game. But 14, uh, 14 points, three blocks a game, and and just about 13 rebounds. I mean, he, he's absolutely deserving of this. No question, no, no second thought to it. The bigger question is, who is the next Utah Jazz to make the team? And for me, I have Mike Conley. You know, Mike Conley's been in the league a long time. He's playing excellent on the defensive end. He's doing Definitely enough. He's dishing out the ball. He's just having a, a, he's not having his best statistical season by any means. And I'm not going to make that argument, but honestly, 
The reason I have him in right now is because he's never made an all-star team. And he was a part of those grizzly teams with Zach Randolph and Marcus Saul that finished like second in the West. They were always in the top three. They were really, really good and fun teams. Tony Allen throwing elbows, man. Like that dude is like the toughest guy to ever play in the NBA. You can ask every NBA player from the last like 15 years, who is the, the baddest dude you played with? And I think almost unanimously people say Tony Allen. At least every time I've ever heard NBA guys talk about that, Tony Allen's the name that gets brought up. But regardless, Mike Connolly got snubbed for all those years because the West was so loaded with all-stars. The West had, for, for that entire time he was playing in Memphis, and once again, I will say, why the hell is Memphis in the Western Conference? But besides the point, the Grizzlies, they were very similar, ironically enough, to kind of this Utah Jazz team, which was just all of the pieces fit together, and they worked really well together. And there's a common denominator between both of those teams. And we're seeing, again, the number one team in the NBA. And I think it's Mike Connolly. That's what Mike Connolly does. Mike Connolly is a synergy guy. And he was hurt and couldn't really find his place last year. And then the season got shut down. And they, they came back to the bubble. And he wasn't quite himself. I think it took a little bit of time in addition to how weird 2020 has been or was and then into 2021 now for him to really click with these guys. I think now that he has and his ability to just straight up, you know, run an offense. I mean, he's a court general, man. He knows exactly where to go with the ball every single time up the floor. And to have someone like that who can run a little, you know, who can do a little pick and roll with Gobert, can feed him in the post, and then can also create ways to get Donovan Mitchell open and Jordan Clarkson open, uh, he is very, very valuable to that Jazz team. I don't know if he's actually going to make it this year because he recently got hurt, and I don't know if he'll end up getting it, but the voters should strongly consider it because if it's not this year, then I don't think it's ever going to happen for Mike Conley. The last, what, three spots I have left here, uh, I'm going with Zion, who is having an awesome season. He is one of the most efficient players in the NBA he shoots almost exclusively from the paint, though. He's actually not shooting terribly from deep. I believe right now he's shooting close to 36% from three, but it's just a ridiculous 61% from the floor. And that's not, you know, Rudy Gobert, who literally only scores layups and dunks. I mean, Zion's like, and again, Zion's the one getting to the rim. Zion is driving to the rim. He's not getting the ball fed to him in the post and doing a move or catching an alley-oop. And he does that a decent amount as well. But so much of so many of Zion's buckets come from him driving the lane, bulldozing guys. I mean, he had a play last night in the game I was watching where he had two guys going up volleyball player style, hands straight up to try to block him. And he splits the two in the middle of the air because he's so strong and gets it for an easy layup and one. On top of it, you know, he's scoring 20, almost 25 points a game. I'd like to see him rebound a little more. I was listening to a podcast with Charles Barkley this morning, actually, where he just said, like, I don't understand why he doesn't, why he doesn't rebound more. You know, why doesn't he just back that big ass up into the paint and work? Cause he he's more athletic than everybody else, but he still doesn't look fully healthy or at least not fully in shape. And he's going to become the next Embiid. You know, we've said this forever with Embiid when Embiid is going to finally get in shape one of these days, Watch the fuck out. And once he did, 
And I think we all saw just how dominant he has been. And I think Zion can absolutely be the same, just a matter of will he put the work in to get there. The last two spots I have here, one of which is going to Chris Paul, who, you know, you can make the argument him or Devin Booker. But from what I've seen, when you look at that Phoenix Suns team before and after, and yes, I know they had the little run in the bubble, undefeated in the bubble, all that stuff. I'm not, I'm not putting too much stock into that. But adding Chris Paul has completely changed that, that team. Now, you have a, a guy who's top 50 all time. You know, he's at least in that realm. And what he's been able to do to help unlock Devin Booker, help him with his mid-range game, get other guys open. I think the development of DeAndre Ayton has been enormous. I think you can put a large amount of that credit onto Chris Paul because Chris Paul just really has been that good. Again, if, if you want to make an argument otherwise, I get it. But the thing about the West is you start running out of stars pretty quick as the people you want to put into this game. I like CP3. You could put De- You could put in Devin Booker. You could put in Donovan Mitchell. Uh, you know, I'm not going to argue you know, too much on that. And the last spot here, I would give to Anthony Davis, but and I did, but I put an asterisk next to it only because I don't think he's going to play in this game. If there is a game, we still don't know that. But if there is a game, I still don't think Anthony Davis is going to be able to play in it, and I don't think the Lakers would let that happen, even if he wanted to. So then who does that last spot go to? And it has to be a forward, so it can't be Donovan Mitchell. Otherwise, it probably would be where I would look. So I'm going to give it to DeMar DeRozan. All right, this San Antonio Spurs team has been an absolute bright spot, like completely unexpected. They have a lot of young, fun players, and DeMar is having one of his best seasons ever. You know, And, and the crazy thing about DeMar DeRozan this year is he was always a high-volume shooter, right? He was always someone who was going to put up a lot of shots, and he was going to put up numbers – but it, you weren't always sure how you know, efficient it was going to be. And I think DeMar has proven now that as a veteran, as someone who can run an offense and be the best player of a team, he can get other guys involved, whether it's DeJounte Murray or Derek White. There's a lot of young, talented players on that San Antonio Spurs roster that I don't think we were anticipating seeing, uh, at least not this year. You know, I, you know, We weren't expecting them to win the games or as many games as we've seen them win here in 2020-2021. So I think DeMar is deserving that, you know, and and I may be alone on that island. I know there's some NBA writers out there that would agree with me, but, you know, I think he's a guy who deserves the opportunity to go to an all-star game, represent San Antonio, and it's, you know, it's just great to see Pop back in, in kind of meaningful basketball. And, you know, they may win a game or two in whatever first-round series they play, but still fun to see nonetheless. So to quickly recap here, on the West, we have Steph, Dame, LeBron, Kawhi, Jokic, starters. And then in the reserves, Luka, Paul George, Zion, Gobert, Chris Paul, Mike Connolly, Anthony Davis, Asterix, DeMar DeRozan. If you think I'm crazy, shoot me a text, because chances are if you're listening to this pod, you already have my number anyway. Uh, And if not, hit me up on Twitter, at Jeff underscore Gimple, because I would love to hear your thoughts. Am I crazy? for anything on these all-star rosters. Uh, all right, now I want to take a quick break and when we get back. I'm going to run through our third of the way through the season NBA awards. We're going to hit the MVP defensive player of the year, rookie of the year, and my all NBA teams to this point 
in the season. All right, we're back. Time to talk a little bit about award seasons. Now, look, I understand that it's really early to be doing this, but I kind of want to keep just a, a live log of where these awards kind of sit for me. You know, who, you know, we do that with MVP all the time as it is, you know, who's the MVP to this point in the season and, and that will never change. But I think it's worth noting because when we go back, you know, at the end of the season and we're going to vote on this, when the actual writers go back and <laughs> vote on this, once again, I don't have a vote. Shocking. It will be nice to kind of have a refresher as to, oh, at this point of the season, oh, that's right, because Utah was crushing it, right? What happens if Utah falls off a clip? You know, we've seen that before, the team that gets hot too early. So what happens if Utah falls off a cliff and then all of a sudden Mike Connolly being on the all-star team or you know, Donovan Mitchell being on an all-NBA team doesn't, you know, doesn't make sense anymore. Not saying that's what I did, but you get the picture. So it's going to be a nice little refresher to go back, remind us of what we were thinking of at this point of the year. So we're going to start off with the award that I think everybody wants to talk about, which is the MVP. To me, I see five candidates right now, five legit candidates based off of what we've seen to this point in the season. LeBron, Jokic, Embiid, Steph, and Damian Lillard. You can make a case for Giannis, but look, they're not they're not giving Giannis three MVPs in a row. Uh, it's 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 amazing that he got two. Frankly, um, the NBA writers really don't like repeat NBA MVPs, and one of the main reasons for this is because so much of this decision, unfortunately, is narrative driven. Right when Russell Westbrook got it for his triple double season, which was complete bullshit, and <laughs> freaking OKC was sixth in the Western Conference that year, and they were manufacturing rebounds for him where Steven Adams would just, you know, back guys out, box guys out, and give Russ wide open free throw rebounds just so they could have that. And I get it. You want to put butts in the seats and everything else. But the narrative of, oh, KD left and is now on Golden State, even though LeBron was definitely the best player in the NBA that year, and you can say that year in and year out, but the narrative about Russ and doing it without Kevin Durant and then being the first player to average a triple-double since Oscar Robinson in the 60s, it just, to me, it, it never sat right with me. You know, Kawhi could have been in that. That was his last full year in San Antonio, and I think Kawhi could have easily been the candidate there for MVP and, and arguably could have won it. Same thing with LeBron when he was back in Cleveland. You know, so Russ winning that MVP just proves the point that a lot of times it's like the Heisman. You know, it's not necessarily the best player statistically. Uh, it's the best player with the best story a lot of times. And that's the biggest argument for LeBron, which is that a lot of people think LeBron should have won it last year. He finished second. He didn't. But statistically, this year, LeBron is having like, I don't want to say a down year. I mean, the dude's averaging 26, 8, and 8, right? Like, And doing it all extremely efficiently. But LeBron has a lot of love in the NBA. LeBron is the NBA in, in so many ways. He is the most defining figure that we've had over the last 20 years and all of basketball. He is going to go down as probably the first or second greatest player of all time, depending on which side of the coin you land on there. 
So for me, you can give LeBron the MVP every single year and you'd be hard pressed to make an argument against it because that's just how good he is. And at this point of his career to be the athletic freak that he is to have taken care of his body to the point now where he can still do this is crazy. And he's, he's so advanced. You know, he sees the game better than anyone out there. He's got better vision. He understands the game better than anyone else in the NBA. But I still think the MVP award should be about that particular season. And maybe LeBron should have won it last year. And in a lot of ways, I, I think if I had a vote, I probably would have leaned towards LeBron. But I don't think you can give it to him this year, at least not until this point. Now, the next three weeks without Anthony Davis, three weeks plus, if the Lakers end up staying the number two seed or even moving up to the number one seed, then we're going to have a different conversation, right? At that point, if he does it without Anthony Davis on his own at 35, looking as good as he is, then I, I will change my tune right now. But statistically, there, the case isn't there for LeBron to be the MVP. It's just not, at least, again, right now. Second on my list is Jokic, who is absolutely the leader in the clubhouse when it comes to the statistic argument. He is one of the most analytically brilliant players I've ever seen. Um, he's also one of the most fun players to watch. His ability to pass the ball left, right, behind his head, no look, in and out of the post. He can shoot it from three, but he doesn't like to. But even when he does, he still shoots at almost 40%. He shoots at an in insanely high clip from the floor. He gets everybody else around him better. And again, just look at the win shares. You know, the win shares, how many wins get directly attributed to that player? 6.1. Giannis is number two at 4.3. He is almost two whole games more valuable than the next player in the NBA. Oh, and by the way, that next player is the two-time defending MVP. And then after that, it's LeBron. And then after that, it's Steph Curry. <laughs> like, Jokic is just, he's on another world right now. And he's doing it on, again, he's doing it on both ends of the, of the floor. Not insanely, but he's playing solid defense. He's not the reason they lose defensively. And he's doing it without a lot of help. And remember, this team lost Jeremy Grant who's having a pretty great season in Detroit, even though it's a, you know, junk stats on a bad team, kind of a year for him. They also lost Mason Plumley, who is not great, but as a serviceable backup, you know, big man, and they could even play on the floor together because you don't necessarily have to force Jokic into the paint. They could have Plumley running the baseline in the dunker spot. And, and Jokic can use, can use anybody. Jokic is the ultimate switch army knife, man. He's the reincarnation of Bill Walton, but even better. You know, if, if you came up with Bill Walton, but in the 21st century of basketball, you get Nikolai Jokic. And I, I, to me, watching him and what he does and the fact that that Denver team, which has looked really bad at times, especially with him off the court, I don't know. I, I, I've just been consistently blown away by Jokic. Uh, the third candidate I have is Joel Embiid. And to me, Joel Embiid's kind of the combination of the two because Joel Embiid directly impacts winning. Right. The fact that the Sixers are the number one team in the Eastern Conference right now is almost solely because of Joel Embiid. Uh, the fact that he came in in shape this year, the fact that he has this ridiculous face up game, you know, he was always either back to the basket and then hitting a little, you know, tried to do a little 
dream shake fadeaway, you know, along the baseline. Now it's he's going to face you up. He's going to take you to the basket. You're going to foul him. He's leading the league at free throw attempts. He gets to the line more than anybody else. He's also shooting like 88% from the free throw line. On top of it, he's averaging his raw numbers are just ridiculous. So for me, he's the second statistical argument right below Jokic, right? He's not quite as good as Jokic, but he is one of the most impactful defenders in all of basketball because he's such a presence just physically on the court that guys do not want to challenge him at the rim. So teams are going to try to beat them by shooting threes. But if you keep them on the perimeter, then we're going to throw Ben Simmons and Matisse Thibel and Danny Green and all these really good defenders out at you. Even Tobias Harris is a good defender, and he can guard guys that are bigger than them. So when you when you look at this overall Sixers team, without Embiid, they're one in five. And with him, they're a lot better than that. <laughs> I don't have the quick math off the top of my head, but you you, you understand – just how valuable Embiid is on a night in and night out basis when you watch them with him and then you watch them without him. And this is crazy too, by the way. Embiid's shooting legit 40% from three. He's right at 40%, so the next shot, whether he misses or makes, it's going to change it. But I had said for years, if Embiid ever actually shoots 40% from three, the NBA is in some serious fucking trouble. Now, it's more important that he hits the low post game But remember, he always did those giant pump fakes to get guys going. Well, now teams realized finally, oh, we shouldn't bite on these pump fakes. And they're giving him the space to shoot threes. And now he's shooting at a higher clip than he ever has before. So as the season goes on, they're going to start falling for that pump fake again. And all of a sudden, we're going to see a little more, you know, Joel Embiid finger pointing going on here. And, you know, when he's having fun and he's out there, he is the most dominant player that we have in the NBA right now. Like, Bar none. Giannis is great when he's getting a full head of steam. He has no post game. He's got no face-up game. He's either going to drive on you or tip it in from around the basket. He's so good about getting space off ball in the paint, but he does not have the post game uh, in the front up game or, you know, backing them down that Embiid does. And Embiid has a legit case for MVP. The last two guys uh, I have at four and five on my list, spoilers here, Steph and Dame. I actually have Dame one step ahead of Steph because I think both of their supporting casts are pretty equal right now. And even though Steph is going off and doing Steph Curry things, and it's my favorite thing to watch in the NBA is Steph Curry being Steph Curry. What Dame Lillard is doing to directly impact winning, and that may have something to do with Terry Stotts, though, I mean, Steve Kerr is one of the best coaches in the NBA too. You can flip a coin for these two. They're right there. I just have Dame a little bit higher because their team is winning more games. But, you know, I I, I still, again, flip a coin. It's more or less the same guy for the MVP. But for right now, I have Jokic number one. I have Jokic number one. I think the the statistics are just too, just too much to to overlook. Yeah, he's just, oh. He's unbelievable. And I just, if you haven't got a chance to sit down and watch a Nuggets game, look up the next time they're on TV and watch because they are that, they are that much fun. They are worth watching. Uh, And then I also have Embiid at number two and LeBron at number three. Defensive player of the year. Candidates I have on my list now, Ben Simmons, Mike Connolly, Gobert, Embiid, Miles Turner. Right now I have Miles Turner at number five. He's putting up a lot of great, blocking stats he's actually his block percentage is the highest in the nba it's actually higher than 
go bears it's at 9.6 percent so again if you don't know block percentage is an estimate of the percentage of opponent two-point field goal attempts blocked by the player while they were on the floor so basically how many blocks do you get while you're on the floor percentage wise on two pointers and Gobert is down just a little bit at 7.3, but Miles Turner is having a really good defensive year. He's always been a solid defensive player. I don't think he has a legitimate shot to win this, but I think it's at least honorable mention category. Uh, after that, I have Embiid. Again, the numbers don't reflect Embiid, but just the presence that he has on the court, I really do think he he will be if he's not. He should be in that conversation. Number three, I have Mike Connolly, who basically orchestrates that entire Utah Utah Jazz defense now it only happens because of Rudy Gobert and his ability to protect the rim but I think Mike Connolly deserves a lot of credit and you always need at least one kind of on-ball defender on that you know from a guard spot which we'll get to in a minute Rudy Gobert number two he's won this award multiple times he's the best pure rim protector that we have in the NBA right now and I don't think that's quite debatable I mean again you can say Embiid but the numbers just the numbers and the eyeballs tell you how dominant Rudy Gobert is uh, defending the rim and his freaking nine feet long arms. Uh, but number one, I have Ben Simmons. And it's because of the stuff I talked about earlier. You look at his ability to guard legitimately one through five and the best at each position one through five. You know, he's been playing with Embiid for the last three, four years. You would think they've gone head to head a few times in practice, right? Like he knows how to guard big men. He's guarded Giannis before. He's only about an inch shorter than Giannis anyway. He can guard LeBron, who's one of the most unguardable guys we've ever had in the NBA. And he can guard Damian Lillard. There you go. That's the case. He can guard all of those guys and have a real legitimate impact on whether or not they can win games for you. And in the postseason, the effect that's going to have, I think is going to be massive on how far the Sixers uh, can go and I think so much of the Sixers ceiling is dependent on Ben Simmons defense now he also has the luxury of having Embiid you know playing behind him but you just you don't see guys who can do that you don't see guys every day who can guard one through five legitimately and do it at an elite level all right now I got the rookie of the year Uh, not a whole lot to get into here for this obviously You know, we're going to see certain guys start to turn it on as the year goes on. But there's been one name that I think has kind of risen above the rest, and it's LaMelo Ball, who is averaging 14-6-6 as a rookie. Did most of it coming off the bench. He's now starting to get a lot more minutes consistently. He's really fun, and he's already got a patented move. His fast break behind the back pass, which is just perfect every single time, I, I don't know how you stop it. Because if you if you play the behind the back pass, then you're giving him the layup because he's six eight, like he's a big athletic dude. He's not afraid to take it up. But if you don't, he's gonna hit you behind the back. And then the other, you know, whether it's Miles Bridges or Devontae Graham or Gordon Hayward, whoever's running the fast break with him, you know, he's gonna get wide open layup. So uh, got to give credit to Lamelo. He's so much better than I thought. I thought he was gonna be coming in shooting these crazy threes. You know, I still remember Lamelo as a 15, 16 year old who scored 99 points in a basketball game at the AAU level because his dad was coaching. He just did nothing but shoot threes. Now his three pointer is still ugly as all hell, 
but he's shooting it at a pretty decent clip, at least better than I thought he would be. So LaMelo to me is the front runner for rookie of the year, but shortly behind him is Tyrese Halliburton, who put up 12, three and five for the Sacramento Kings. Not a lot of people may know much about him. Uh, You know, he fell in the draft. A lot of people thought he was going to be a top five pick. He fell all the way down to 11 or 12, I believe, and Sacramento scooped him up. He's a great fit, and there's a lot of teams up in the top 10. Like, you know, I think Golden State's very happy with James Wiseman, but also I think they would have loved Tyrese Halliburton too. You know, I think there's a lot of teams that would have really liked Tyrese Halliburton, but he's putting up great season so far. I think he's going to be a longtime NBA player. Uh, For me, those are the only two, like, standout candidates right now the rest of it's kind of open I mean we've seen guys like Tyrese Maxey for the uh, Sixers go in and he had a 37 point night I think earlier in the year Um, Patrick Williams from Chicago's had a bunch of good nights Cole Anthony hit a game winner I loved him coming out I like to call him Cole Andre because he looks just like Eric Andre Uh, and then James Wiseman as well Uh, he is currently hurt but when he's been in he's been a really impactful player there for Golden State and I think Golden State either I'd be surprised if they traded him, but I wouldn't be that surprised, uh, especially if they were able to get someone really good in return. All right, now to the last thing here for the NBA. It's been a lot of NBA talk, so I'm going to try to rip through this pretty quick. My all-NBA first, second, and third teams as of right now. So this is both conferences, two guards, two forwards, and a center for each of the first all-NBA teams. So third team all-NBA, I have... Ben Simmons and James Harden, Paul George and Sabonis, and the center is Rudy Gobert. I thought about putting in Jalen Brown there uh, at the second guard spot, but I just Harden's been too good, and they're going to end up being one of the final, you know, three four teams left. I think they're going to be in the final four teams left in this. I think they at least get to the Eastern Conference Finals. And Jalen Brown's having a great year. And again, this is super early, so this is more than likely going to change. But as of right now, Ben Simmons, James Harden, Paul George, DeMontis Sabonis, and Rudy Gobert as my third team. My second team, All-NBA, I have Luka, Bradley Beal as my guards. I can't put Bradley Beal on the first team. I just can't. The team is the team around him, the Wizards, are just too bad. And I get how good of a season he's having, but I just I cannot put him on the first team. And the same can be said for Luca. You know, there's a real chance that the Mavericks don't make the playoffs this year. And that could be looked at as an organizational failure for signing Kristaps Porzingis, for trading away Seth Curry for Josh Richardson, who just, you know, I think everyone likes Josh, Josh Richardson, but I just don't think he is the guy that we hoped he would be. He wasn't that guy in Philly last year. And he hasn't been the guy in Dallas yet, which again, isn't Luca's fault. But I just – I can't put Luca for as good of a season as you having. I can't put him on the first team yet. If they turn it around and make the playoffs, it's a different conversation. But for right now, I have Luca on the second team All-NBA. Kawhi Leonard and KD I have there at second team as well. That debate is really tough. You know, if the Nets end up as the number one seed in the Eastern Conference, I might end up switching this around a little bit. But Kevin Durant just hasn't played enough games. He's been hurt. I think he's missed almost 10 games already this season, so it's going to hurt his any sort of MVP chances for him unless he comes back and plays the rest of the season. But recovering from that Achilles tear, I don't think you would want to do that. I think you want to you know, have him ready for the postseason because ultimately winning a championship is going to mean more to Brooklyn and for Kevin Durant than making first-team All-NBA. 
And at center, I have Joel Embiid, which is tough, but Jokic has just been too good. I, I can't put him ahead of Jokic. So then my, my first team, all NBA, third of the way through the season, Steph Curry and Damian Lillard. I think what they're both doing, both of their teams are in the playoffs and they're almost single-handedly carrying both teams there, uh, as well as at the forward spot, I have Giannis and LeBron finished off with the MVP to this point in the season, Nikola Jokic. So that's my NBA stuff. Went really long on it, but I hope you guys enjoyed it. And like I said, I'm going to keep track of this. I'm going to hold this down. We're going to update it throughout the year. Might even put up like a live blog post that gets adjusted each week as to where I have these people. But for right now, that's where I have it. Uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to hit up our favorite segment, favorite news segment, and serve up a little bit of sports gumbo. We had a tremendous meal. Man, we had uh, smothered pork chops, fried chicken, collard greens. Man, the guys loved it. <laughs> Just like one big family eating together. And I'm going to be in about uh, 18 to 22 homes next week. So that means about 18 to 22 gumbos. So uh, <laughs> this is going to be great. All right, our first piece of the sports gumbo today, first ingredient of sports gumbo today, involves a guy by the name of Johnny Football. Or should I say Johnny Fan Controlled? football that's right johnny manzel is back in the headlines he's playing in a new pro football league called the fan control football league now this is an awesome story this league this fan controlled football league is exactly what it says the fans control every aspect of this from the draft to the plays like literally the plays that are being called on the field get voted on by the fans on twitch the whole thing gets streamed on Twitch. So you can go on, watch it for free. I have a bookmark. I'm going to watch it and kind of follow along this season, throw in a little bit of updates here. But Johnny Menzel is playing in this league. It's a seven-on-seven seven league. They play on a 50-by-35-yard field, which is basically a quarter of the size of your average football field. And it's played indoors, like arena football league style. And I actually remember when I was in college learning about this league uh, where Fans are controlling everything, and Marshawn Lynch is attached, and Richard Sherman, and Al Austin Eckler, and there's a bunch of players that are involved in this bizarre league that, again, you can watch for free online. And I kind of love that aspect of it, that they're doing this whole thing through Twitch, so you can hop on, you can watch for free, and I, I guess put your votes in for the players. Again, I'm not 100% sure. I'm excited to figure out and, and, and kind of experience it for myself. But there was a highlight, you know, I think Manziel went one of five throwing the ball and he broke off like a, a long ass run. He got caught from behind and he's been having fun with it. You know, he even said, he's like, I feel pretty washed up after the game and they, they did end up losing, but I doubt this whole league will catch on and become a new football league that we're all locked into weekend after weekend. But it's a really fun idea, and it's definitely at least worth checking out. And in classic Johnny football style, he said, win or lose, we booze on the Zappers. He plays for the Zappers. Sorry, I tell you, me tug dog, yeah. Me tug dog, yeah. Okay. I've always been a big Jersey guy. I love unique, fun jerseys, right? Because it's something special about them, right? Growing up, you'd be like, all right, we have our home jerseys, our away jerseys. One's usually white. The other one's going to be color or black, depending on whatever the team is. The NBA over the last, I don't know, seven, eight years or so has been going pretty hard with the whole 
creative city edition jerseys and, and the city edition stuff has come over more recently where it's like, Oh, we're going to wear these jerseys that represent our teams and our cities. And we're going to have little tributes to it. You know, oh, Portland's wearing jerseys that just say Oregon on them. The Sixers have jerseys that have the boathouse row in Philadelphia on them. I'm going to be honest. They wear them way too much, like way too much. They wear them in a lot of cases more then they wear their traditional jerseys. And to me, that takes all the importance out of it. It just becomes too hard to follow because, you know, Phoenix all of a sudden is out here wearing black jerseys and, and I'm getting confused on who's on whose team. And then luckily, because it's the NBA, you see their faces, you see the names. It's close enough that you can usually tell, obviously, when you see seven footers like Embiid running on the court, you're not going to confuse him with, you know, someone on another team. And maybe this is a little bit of me sounding like an old man yelling at clouds. But again, I love the alternate jerseys. I always have. I always thought they were really special. My first basketball jersey was the old 76ers logo, that blue jersey that they had with the old AI era you know, logo on it. And it was an Aaron McKee jersey. I still have it to this day. Anytime I go watch a Sixers game, I wear that jersey because to me, it's so cool to have the alternate old school unique jerseys. And I feel like all of the value has been taken out of it because they wear them so often. And to pull a quote from one of my favorite TV shows of all time, How I Met Your Mother, I'm talking about, you know, every night, I remember it was uh, Neil Patrick Harris's character, right? He said, every night needs to be legendary. That was his whole thing. Legend, wait for it, dairy, right? That was his whole kind of deal. I remember one episode, he wanted every single night to be legendary. And in response, one of the other characters, Ted, says, if every night is legendary, then no nights are legendary. And I think that's kind of what's happening here with these jerseys, which is some of them are really cool and exciting and fun, but they're wearing them so much. And there are so many different uniforms now. Each team has like five different jersey pairings they can wear that it's just, it's kind of sucked some of the specialness out of it some of the legendariness of it that's not even a word but you get it i get right there come on all right hey <laughs> this weekend marks the return of an excellent brand of football and no i'm not talking about the fan controlled football league rather i'm talking about the fcs that's right d1 double some of you older college football fans may know it as, but because of COVID-19, the FCS decided that they were not going to have a fall football season. So as a football fan, that means that we are getting about two to three months of legit D1 level football. And we talked about this in the last pod a little bit as me and Vito were breaking down Trey Lance and, and coming from North Dakota State. But it's important to remember, man, like this is not, you know, D2, D3 football. This is high level football. and with a lot of really good players, uh, a lot of really good transfers transfer down to the FCS. Now with the one-time transfer rule that has come in where, you know, guys get a a one-year transfer exempt more often than not, it hasn't been as prevalent, at least in the last year or so, but for the longest time, you could transfer down to the FCS without having to sit out the one-year penalty that you used to have to serve for transferring from one school to another at the FBS level. Now you would think, all right, well, if guys can transfer to anywhere in the country, any other division one school, they're going to continue to do that. But what we've seen is that a lot of the top tier FCS programs are still getting high level transfers from the FBS. 
James Madison has a cornerback who's coming in playing, uh, starting for them this upcoming spring season, which is weird to say for football, but yeah, the upcoming spring football season who played at UNC, a power five school, school that finished in the top 15, I believe at the end of this year, whatever the final college football playoffs rankings finished at. So for all of us, massive football fans who normally feel like "Ah, it's going to be forever until we get football back. Well, we're in luck. You get football you get it throughout the whole spring. And by the way, the way that the FCS does their playoffs is they do a full on tournament. Now, normally it's 24 teams and the top four seeds all get a buy, but this year it's going to be a little bit different. It's a 16 team bracket, which still means a full blown FCS tournament just without the first, you know, kind of play in round of the bracket. So, uh, sit back and enjoy that one. I'm telling you, you if you've never watched FCS football before, watch it and thank me later. Wow. Damn. All right, the last piece here of our sports gumbo. It's about golf. Jordan Spieth has been in contention the last two weekends. When I say in, con- in contention... I mean, he was leading the field going in to Sunday for the last two weekends, this past weekend at Pebble Beach and the weekend before at the Waste Management Open. Remember when Jordan Spieth broke Tiger Woods' record for largest margin of victory at the Masters? I remember I was a freshman in college and just being dumbfounded watching this dude fall out he was so good. Like he, it was, you couldn't keep your eyes off the TV. He was up by so much and it wasn't even going to be close. The final scores. And yet he just kept, kept going. Like you, you couldn't keep your eyes off the TV. He was exceptional. He went on to win three majors in 2015. And in fact, in his first four years on tour, he had 11 wins, which is a really high number. Now, since then, it's been four years since he's won on the tour. Four years since Jordan Spieth has won on the PGA Tour. And this new reputation he has as the choke artist of golf, it's tough because part of it is on him, obviously. He hasn't played well enough down the stretch to win these tournaments. But part of it also falls on us, right? In every sport where there's an undisputed GOAT, when that GOAT is no longer playing or not playing at the highest level that he once was we as sports fans immediately jump onto who is the next guy who is the next michael jordan who is the next tiger woods who is the next now tom brady and the reality of it is we're probably never going to get another one you know lebron is brilliant and will probably end up as the all-time leading scorer and have the record for the most assists of all time and he's already accumulated just an unbelievably incredible career, but he's never going to be Jordan because Jordan was bigger than just what he did on the court. And LeBron is as well. But at that time in the nineties, as the last dance did an excellent job of illustrating, he was the most famous human being on earth. Tiger Woods was so revolutionary in golf on top of the fact that he was black and you had, we had never really seen a black golfer at all really winning at that kind of a level, but then to win it at a level that we had never seen before to challenge records with that Jack had said that we never thought he'd, anyone would ever come close to 
we have to stop projecting forward. You know, and we're doing it right now with Mahomes. Mahomes is incredible, but it could be three years until Mahomes gets into another Super Bowl. And to just pencil it in that, oh yeah, he is the next goat. He is the next Tom Brady. He is the next Michael Jordan. He is the next Tiger Woods. I think is setting these guys up for failure because then when they don't meet these impossible standards of these larger than the game figures, we ultimately call them choke artists. And, you know, hey, mental strength is a huge part of sports and I get it, but you'd be kidding yourself if you don't think that actually plays a role in this. Honest to God. All right, that's all I got for you all today. Uh, Great pod. Excited to get this out there. And uh, let me know what you think. Hit me up on Twitter at Jeff underscore Gimple at read option pod. Follow, like, subscribe. You know all the stuff that you got to do. Download the pod, undownload it, redownload it again. And let's just keep this thing rolling because, again, it's been a lot of fun to do and we're excited to keep it going. So I will talk to you guys next week. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll run it back here on the read option.